I'm pretty sure uh, Foo Fighters in church is a dream I never knew I had until <laughs> just now. So that was awesome. Well, welcome, everybody. Thanks for being here this weekend. Welcome, everybody, watching online and at our live sites at the Montrose Building. Thanks for being here as well. And of course, it's Father's Day weekend, and uh, we just want uh, all of you who are dads or are going to be dads maybe soon, we want you to know that we love you and appreciate you and respect you and honor you. And uh, fatherhood's a big, big deal. I, I love, I do love the theme of that song. It's kind of the everyday hero. I'm convinced that 90% of fatherhood is showing up and being involved and being steady and being stable and giving your life away and that God uses that in, in powerful ways, kind of incalculable ways in many ways. So thank you, men, for, uh, for your faithfulness, your dedication, uh, your sacrifice for your family, and I believe that that pleases God. So I wanna, I wanna pray for you, okay, and ask God to bless you in a special way. Would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, want to take the time to say thank you for all of the fathers that are under the sound of my voice right now, thank you for them. And thank you for the privilege of being a father, Lord. It's the, it's the greatest joy of my life. And so thank you for that. And God, thank you for that, how that completes us and fulfills us and, and gives us a reason to fight and stand. And thank you for it. Thank you, Jesus, that uh, as a dad, we really, in, we really translate what the Heavenly Father is like to our children. And so, God, thank you for that privilege. And God, and help us in it. Help us in the responsibility of it. Help us in our frailty as we do that, Lord. Uh, we want our kids to know you and love you and see you clearly. And we know they see you through us. And so, Lord, as we strive to do that and we strive to follow you and walk in you and be the men that you've called us to be, we need your strength and we need your joy and we need your help, and uh, God grant that to us. Lord, we honor the, the men of, our, of this church family, and Lord, they are not a punchline and they are not a joke. We respect them. We believe in them. We believe in the places that you have put them uh, Lord, we, we want to, to lead and serve and love well. And so help us to do that and help us to even bring that out of each other. So thanks for all of it, Jesus, and thanks that we can celebrate fathers in a special way today. In your name, amen, amen. Well, this Father's Day weekend, uh, we're also gonna kind of kick off a, a new series, and we decided to launch it this weekend on purpose and so it kind of all flows together a little bit, Father's Day weekend as well as the new series. The new series we're calling Made for This, and this is the idea of the series. The idea is that the things God calls us to, kind of the high ideals of Scripture, right? That a life of purity, a life invested eternally, a life that makes an impact on our children or families or the people that we love. These high ideas of Scripture are actually things that we can live out in reality. Uh, they're not far-off ideas. They're not like ethereal ideas. They're kind of like conceptual. But these are things that God lays out for us, calls us to, equips us for, and they can actually be real parts of our Life. I think a lot of times when we look at Scripture and we look at these ideas and we look at like faithfulness and purity and 
life investment and all these kind of things, we look at them and we think those are great concepts that somebody else can live out, but I have to live in reality and I can't live that way. Like it's too much for me, right? And so we'll look at something like in scripture and we'll, that'll say like, we should love our neighbors and be tied to their lives. And we'll look at that and think, I can't even get my grass mowed. Like what I need to be doing is building an ark right now in Northeast Ohio to save my family. But it's like, but I, how in the world am I supposed to invest my life in somebody else, right? Uh, we're supposed to, to, to uh, honor the people that we work with. And, and we'll look and say, well, have you ever met my boss? Like, he's a jerk. And, and I'm supposed to be respectful and honoring to him. We're supposed to forgive as we've been forgiven. And we would look at that and say, I love the idea. Do you know my dad? Do you know my ex? Do you know my mom? These people in my life forgive them and see God heal that, mm, I can barely stay like functional with them. And that's kind of the way that we'll interact with scripture. We'll look and say, there, there's great idea, God, great concept, great theory. It, it's kind of impractical. And I'm an adult. And as an adult, I, I don't live in the theoretical dreams of childhood. I live in the realities of what my life is and how it's become. <clears throat> we, we tend to interact with kids this way. You know, we'll look at kids and say, you can be whatever you decide to be. You can accomplish whatever you put your mind to accomplishing. And a child will believe that, but an adult knows that's not actually true, right? That it's not really the way that life tends to work because the realities of our circumstances set in. So I, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about my, my brother-in-law. My brother-in-law, when he was in high school, was a phenomenal athlete, and uh, he, he was uh, dedicated, and he was dedicated as, a, as a, a swimmer. He's a great swimmer, competed in state competitions, even national competitions, and he gave his life to it. He, he got up, and he would go to school like 4 o'clock in the morning and swim before school. He'd swim after school. He didn't eat sugar for like five years. There's pictures of him where he is just ripped and full of muscle and no body fat, which is kind of funny because if you saw him now, like glory days, he'll pass you by. And so, like, so, but the, he, he, you can look and you can see the evidence of his dedication, right? And his big dream was to swim in the Olympics. And it's a great dream and he worked hard and he gave his very best to it. He was so good that he actually made the Ohio State swim team, which is a big deal, Division One, right? So he swam for Ohio State. He swam one year for them. After one year, he dropped off that team, went to a smaller school, and swam on scholarship at the smaller school. And I remember back then talking to him and saying, Joe, why, why are you giving that up? I mean, that's your ticket to the Olympics, right? If you really want this dream, that would be the path to take. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, you know, Jeff, he goes, what happens is you hit a certain level, and it's all about genetics, it's all about genetics. I can work as hard as I can possibly work. I can be as disciplined as much as I can be possibly disciplined. I can perfect my form as much as I can perfect my form. But Michael Phelps was born Michael Phelps and I wasn't. And he said, I got to that level and I saw guys didn't work half as hard as I work or weren't half as dedicated as I work and they're killing me with times. And I just realized there's a part where like genetics takes over, right? That I have these dreams but this reality hits and I, I can't be that. I wasn't born 
that way. We would talk about that like in basketball. You'd encourage a kid, you'd practice, you shoot, who knows you could make the NBA. And as you get older, like reality sets in. Like LeBron James was was born LeBron James. He was LeBorn LeBron James, right? That's who he is. And he works hard and he's self-disciplined. I don't mean to disparage him, but I'm not him. And no matter how much effort I put into it, I'm not going to be 6'8" and float like a butterfly. It's just not going to happen. And we'll bring that mindset into our spiritual life. I work so hard and I try so hard and I'm so dedicated, but I'm not the pastor. I'm not the missionary. I'm not whoever you would put in as a spiritually successful person. I'm just not that person. I'm me, right? And, and I can only accomplish so much. I can only go so far. And that dream of being who the scripture says I could be, I'm not, I'm not Michael Phelps. I'm not LeBron James. That's never going to be my reality. Maybe I can improve my life. Maybe I can function a little better than my parents did. Maybe I can tone down some sinful habits in my life, but I can't achieve that. And we'll bring that thinking into our relationship with God. Now here's the catch. Ready? In your own power and in your own will, that's true. You cannot be who God has called you to be. You cannot defeat sin. You cannot break cycles of dysfunction. You cannot overcome addictions. In your own strength and power, you can't do that. But what the Bible teaches us is this, that God, when we accept Christ as our Savior, recreates us. He recreates us, we're reborn, we're remade. And in Christ, I might have been born Jeff Bogue in my humanity, but in Christ, I'm LeBron James. I might have been born my brother-in-law Joe in my humanity, but in Christ, he's born Michael Phelps. God has done this spiritual work in us so that in Christ and through Christ, I can actually live the life that the Bible lays out in Scripture. I am made for this. I'm created for this. And I I just want to be clear. I'm not talking about the health and wellness nonsense. I'm not talking about positive thinking. I'm not talking about life improvement. I'm not talking about you being everything you dreamt of being. I'm talking about the spiritual things that God calls us to. That when the Bible says, I can and should forgive as I've been forgiven, In Christ, I can actually live that way. When the Bible says there should not be a hint of sexual immorality among among us, we would look at that and say, I don't know, I don't know what planet you live on, but there's sexual immorality everywhere. That in Christ, that can be a reality for me. When the Bible says things like there should be no profanity that comes out of my mouth, you you might look and say, I I was raised with Captain F bomb, man. It's the way I think. In Christ, my vocabulary can change. I can live the way that God called me to live, the LeBron James, the Michael Phelps spiritual level of godliness because of what Christ has done. And as I understand that I'm made for this, that God has done this work in me, as I become enlightened to it, we'll see here in a minute, the scripture says, it's incredible that this higher plane, this higher calling of life this eternally focused and invested life can actually become a reality for everyone who is a follower of of Jesus Christ.
Now, on Father's Day, I, w- I was thinking about this, and I always go back to my dad, right? I always miss him this time of year terribly. And, and I, if I think of somebody who was born with every spiritual disadvantage you can think of, I would think of my dad, right? So my dad was not raised in a Christian home. I'm not sure my dad was raised in a home that the Bible was even present in. He wasn't even raised in like a Ten Commandments house, right? He was raised in kind of this spiritually void place. He was raised in total dysfunction. He, his father never loved him, never spoke that to him. He moved out when he was 16, took his younger sisters with him to protect him. Just breakdown after breakdown after breakdown, dysfunctional marriage, dysfunctional father, dysfunctional life, raised with every spiritual disadvantage that you could have. He came to Christ in his mid-30s about the time that his eight-year-old son was killed by a drunk driver. So lots of pain, lots of wounds, no model whatsoever. Came to Christ as an adult at the end of his life, at his funeral. My dad's reputation, what he was known for was his godliness. He was known as the guy that, that his children never heard him say a curse word. If you can imagine the environment he was raised in, my dad lived to be 74 years old. I never once ever heard him say a curse word. He lived in faithfulness to his wife for 52 years until he passed away. He lived as a leader of his church. He lived as a man who, who shattered the cycles of dysfunction. At his viewing, his funeral, people would come through saying, your dad had the most integrity of ever, any person I've ever met. Your dad was kind. Your dad was generous. Your dad was my hero. Your dad was like a dad to me again and again and again and again and again. All four of his living children, my brother and my two sisters and I, all four of his children walk closely with Christ. All of his grandchildren walk closely with Christ. His two sons are pastors, and three of his grandsons right now are are either pastoring or studying to be pastors. Against every spiritual obstacle you can think of, that winds up being the outcome of his life, right? So when I think of Father's Day, that's what passes through my mind, right? And so as a, as a way to like lay down the foundation for this series and also kind of in lieu of Father's Day, what I, what I started to do was think through how did, how did he do that? Like what, what did he get a hold of that caused this transformation in his life and led to that being the outcome because dad lived this higher level of life that the scripture called us to. His life equaled that investment at the end. What did he get a hold of and how did he pull that off? So let me walk you through this. First of all, if you got your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians. And we're gonna hang out in Ephesians for a few weeks here at Grace. So you can mark your Bibles or put your, your uh, bookmark there. Ephesians, and we're gonna look at verse, uh, chapter one and two this weekend. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 946 in those Bibles. And if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible and you want to keep that, just keep it. Happy Father's Day. Write your name in it. 
and, uh, and have it. And all this is on the app. So I started trying to organize in my mind like this path that dad must have taken spiritually. And so I, I kind of wrote it down this way as I was looking through the scriptures. What did he get a hold of? The first thing I think that dad got a hold of is he somehow came to understand and to believe and to accept that he was chosen by God. He was chosen by God. This is the way Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, for God, for he, for God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. The Bible says, God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you didn't just stumble into being a follower of Jesus Christ. You were chosen by God to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God. That idea of adoption is such a powerful, powerful idea. If you talk to a counselor or to a psychologist, they will tell you, that the deepest emotional wound a person can suffer is the wound of abandonment. That I, I have the ability to have you in my life, I just don't want you in my life. I, 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 I'm supposed that the natural tie is for you to be in my life. I just reject you. I on purpose walk away, right? And that was my dad's life. His father chose not to love him. My, I heard my dad say when he was 70, he goes, my dad never loved me. He didn't love any of us. And so he grew up with that disadvantage. I'm, I'm not wanted. I'm not loved. I'm not accepted. My dad doesn't even care if I move out in the middle of high school and take his daughters with me. We're abandoned. The wounds and the scars of that would generate but somehow God, when, when, when dad got a hold of who Christ was and locked onto this idea that Christ chose him to adopt him, if abandonment is the greatest scar that can be left, adoption is the greatest salve that can be brought. Because abandonment says you're supposed to be in my life and I don't want you in my life. Adoption says there's really no reason for you to be in my life, but I want to invite you into it. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want you in this family. When we get a hold of this idea that God wants us, he wants to know us, he wants to love us, he wants to journey with us. When you ring God's doorbell and he opens the door, he's glad to see you. He's thrilled that you popped over for the afternoon, see? That you are welcome and you're adopted into sonship. All the rights and the privileges and the power of the family is now yours. You didn't have it. You didn't necessarily have a natural way to deserve it, but God chose to invite you in. I think that changed my dad's life. I think it altered the way that he thought. I think it altered his identity. He went from a rejected child to an adopted son. And he was chosen. And he wasn't just chosen to survive or chosen to get by or chosen to manage his dysfunction. It's a higher plane of living that he was chosen for. For he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and 
blameless. God didn't look at you. If you're a follower of Jesus, he doesn't look at you and say, you know what? I choose to get you out of hell and you're just not going to have to suffer. And just, if you can just go to church a few times, that would be good. God chose you and called you to a higher level of living. He didn't call you to manage your sin. He called you to have victory over it. He didn't call you to temper your addictions. He called you to be free of them. He didn't call you to function in your dysfunction. He called you to shatter the cycles of dysfunction. Holy and blameless, higher. And if we're not careful, what happens is we'll look and we'll say, I'm not adopted. I'm just kind of allowed to sit at the doorstep of God. We'll look and say, that's not for me. I mean, I get it, I get the idea, but I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm not that woman. And God would look and say, oh, yes, you are. I chose you. I want you. I brought you in. You are my son. You are my daughter. That is your identity. And the power and the identity and the culture of the family is the culture that you live in now. You don't live in spiritual poverty. You live in spiritual wealth. You don't live in spiritual failure. You live in spiritual success because of what I have done in you, for you, and through you. So somehow it starts there, that this is who I am and this is what I'm welcome to. Now what's fascinating is this. The Apostle Paul goes on here in chapter 1, and he says, this is what has happened. You have been chosen. You have been predestined. You have been adopted. That's all the will of God. And then what he does is he prays this very, very unique prayer. He says this. He goes on. You predestined, adopted the sonship. And then he prays this prayer, verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Isn't that a fascinating prayer? He says, I I pray. He he doesn't say, I pray that you're grateful because you should be on the street. I pray that you you knock it off so God doesn't change his mind and just decides to deep fry you anyways. He says, I pray that this all registers with you. You have been adopted You are a son, a daughter of God, and I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I pray that you understand who you are now and that you don't have to live in the brokenness of who you were. You have to live in the hope of who you are. I think dad got that in his brain that he, he, he got the security of being chosen and then he awakened to who he was. And he awakened that this, this calling, this aspiration, this higher plane of living wasn't for somebody else. It was for him because he's a child of God. And he was chosen and welcomed into it. It's fascinating what the Apostle Paul says in this whole passage. He says this in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Then he goes on. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Did you catch that? He's saying, I pray that you awaken to this, your glorious inheritance. It's not something you aspire and hope to get. It's something that's already been given to you. And that you awaken to this power that is at work within you. It's the same power God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. The power of the resurrection is at work in me, not for me to get what I want in life. That's the TV nonsense. But for me to live the life that I'm called to live. I can't be the father I'm supposed to be. I didn't have a father to model my life after. God would look and say, right, I can resurrect that in you and you can be the father that you were called to be. I can't have a, a great and happy and healthy marriage. We got too many wounds. We'll be lucky if we just stay together. God would look and say, great, that, that's a poverty mindset spiritually. I can bring the power of the resurrection of Christ to bear on your relationship and make it something that you could never make it be. I can't, I'm just going to manage my addictions. I'm going to get off of alcohol and go to food or cigarettes. And God would look and say, no, no, no. I can shatter all of that. You, you are my son. You are my daughter. You don't have to live that way. I raised Christ from the dead. I can raise you from an addiction. And that power is exerted in our lives. I'm made for that. It's not for me. It's not positive thinking. It's a supernatural spiritual work. And Paul's praying. He, he's praying for us. And he's saying, I pray that your eyes are enlightened to that. Because you might think that spiritual success is about you getting your act together. It's not. Spiritual success is about you realizing the power that God has in you already and living the life that he has already given to you. We are chosen. We become then enlightened. And then we start to make different choices. Paul goes on and he goes to chapter two then. And he says something supernatural has happened to us spiritually. We have been raised from the dead spiritually. He says this in verse four, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. This power to overcome sin that's given to us by Christ, this power to live the life that the scripture lays out, it's not some idea out there. I've worked my tail off and I can't make the Olympics right, but you've been reborn, Michael Phelps. I, I, I went to every camp possible and I, I, I'm not gonna make the basketball team. I know that, but you've been made a new creation. You're LeBron now. That power is within you through Christ, not through us, to live as someone who is spiritually alive instead of someone who's spiritually dead. I think dad got that. I don't even know if he would know to say that, but he got that. Because he didn't embrace the dead parts of his life, he embraced the alive parts of his life. He didn't embrace his bitterness and his emotional wounds. 
and the voids left by an abusive father, he embraced the hope of Christ. He didn't embrace bitterness and hold a grudge against his dad the rest of his life. He embraced the mercy and the love and the healing of Christ. He actually cared for his father the rest of his life. He didn't embrace the sin of his youth. I don't even know what that home was like. I can only imagine, but I know what my home was like. He didn't even embrace the vocabulary of his father. He, he spoke gentleness and respect and truths and psalms and spiritual songs. That he spoke godliness. That was his reputation. See? Instead of looking and saying, well, I... I was born dead, I guess I just kind of lived dead. Or maybe I'll live a little bit alive because I'm a Christian, I go to church. Somehow dad looked and said, I'm not that, I'm this. That doesn't define me, Christ defines me. Death doesn't define me, life defines me. And I'm going to live that way. I'm going to believe what God says has happened in my life and that's going to be what defines me and defines my family. And you put that together over a lifetime and you stand at his funeral and that's exactly what came out. These people walking through that line have no idea that that was what he was raised in. His children, I remember saying to my dad one time, I said, I said Pop, I can't even relate to your childhood. It would, it would never cross my mind that my father didn't love me. I can't, even, I can't even, it wouldn't even register with me. But that's all he knew. What happened? In Christ, he was made new. He was made different. And that became his identity and his point of functioning in his life. Now, all of this kind of leads to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, which is where we're going to build our series out of for the next few weeks. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When, when I realize that I'm chosen and my mind is enlightened to the, to the life that God has called me to live, and I start to choose life instead of death, what happens is I get to a passage like this and I can start to realize I can actually live the way that God has called me to live. I am the handiwork of God. I'm created in Christ to do good works. Those good works, that higher plane of living, that's not some idea out there. I'm born for that. I'm made for it. That those good works, that's not some concept that, that other people aspire to. I'm born to that. All of my life and all of my life circumstances lead to that. I'm created in Christ to do good works that God has prepared in advance for me to do. There, there is acts of godliness and a life of godliness that God has prepared for me to live. And me not embracing that or living it isn't tied to God's unwillingness for me to do it. It's tied to me not being enlightened or accessing or allowing the power of God to play out in my life. I'm made for this. And I am created to live this life that God crafted me to live. Now, what we're going to wrestle with over the next few weeks is, is a, I call it a spiritual mystery. And the spiritual mystery is this. Most of the time, 
When we talk about improving our life or elevating our life, the way that we talk about that or the way that we think about it is tied to me or you getting our act together, right? So it's a self-discipline, knock it off, stop it. It's like getting in shape. If we said, I'm going to get in shape, what, what I would do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buckle down, man. I'm only going to eat protein and nothing, but I'm going to drink protein. I'm going to eat protein. I'm going to sniff protein. I'm just going to do protein constantly. And I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to work out, work out. I've been told that gets you in shape. I don't know personally, but I've been told that that's what happens with it. And so we think of a self-disciplined mindset. I'm going to knock it off. My wife and I have been fighting. I'm going to stop fighting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage my kids. I'm going to make them hang out with me. That, that's kind of the way that we would think about it. Now, here's a spiritual mystery, and we're going to work on this over the next few weeks. And I think it'll really impact the way that you approach your, your relationship with God. Here it is. Ready? Here's a spiritual mystery. My spiritual work is to allow Christ to do his work. My spiritual work is not to get my act together because I can't. If you could have broken that habit, broken that cycle, or broken that addiction, you would have done it a thousand times by now. So my spiritual work is not to get my act together. My spiritual work, I know it sounds weird, it sounds counterintuitive, is actually to step back and allow God to do his spiritual work. To go back to my identity and say, I am the handiwork of God. I need to be enlightened, the eyes of my heart to be enlightened, to see how God has crafted me and what the good works are that I was prepared in advance to do are in this phase, in this position of my life. And as I do my spiritual work of discovering and allowing God to do his work, I wind up living in the power of the resurrection. I wind up living the life that God has actually called and beckoned me to live. My spiritual work is to allow God to do his work in me. This past... Uh, month or so has been interesting in my life. I, my birthday was about a month ago. Thanks for all the cards and money you didn't send. And, and so <laughs> I feel oh so loved. Uh, but this birthday was a unique one. I turned 48. I know I look 25 and I'm sexy and all that kind of stuff, but <laughs> you don't even need to say it, I know. But, but the, I, t I turned 48 a month, about a month ago. I have had my 48th birthday on my mind since I was 15. Uh, it, it's, it's weird to talk about. I have, I have always thought about turning 48 years old. And the reason that I've always thought about that is when my dad was 48, he had a massive stroke one day and wiped him out. Wiped out his mind, wiped out his body, couldn't walk, couldn't talk, uh, he couldn't think, he had to relearn all that, couldn't dress himself, couldn't eat, like he had to relearn all of that and only recovered to a point. And so I've always had on my mind turning 48 years old, ever since I was a kid, I've always thought about turning 48 years old. So this year when I turned 48 years old, um, it's been profound 
for me. I'm, in fact, I'm not quite sure I've figured it out yet. Because I, I look at myself at 48, and I think this is the phase of life that my father was in, right? So at 48, I feel young. I feel healthy. I, I feel energized. I feel I, I'm at the beginning of my prime years, right? So I'm, I'm young enough to feel young, and I'm old enough to feel successful, it's, it's just that kind of phase of, of life. My youngest son, Heidi and I's youngest son, is 12. That's how old I was when dad had a stroke. And so I, I stand here and I think, dad probably felt like this. You know, he was successful at his, my dad was a machinist. A re, a, actually like a really high-end machinist. So he was successful at his career. He was full of, full of, my dad was kind of this leader that was kind of fun. And my, in fact, my, my mom always said, I'm exactly like my father. And I always take it as a compliment. But I didn't really remember dad before he got sick. And so even out 48, I'm like, is this what, is this what dad was like? Right? He was a leader in our church. We just went to a little church and had one pastor. So he was almost like the associate pastor, ran the business meetings. He was a, an elder. Elder is a Bible word. It just means overseer, or leader of the church. So he was an elder in our church, and, and that was him. And then he, he, he woke up literally one day in the summertime and had a massive stroke, and it, it, it wiped him out. He never worked again. My dad was brilliant and in many ways, like math, my sisters would bring home algebra or like calculus problems, and my dad would look at them in their school book, and he would answer it in his head. He could give you the answer. He couldn't always tell you how he got it, but he knew it. So all of that was gone. He, he couldn't reason anymore. He used to be able to, you could describe something to my father, and he'd go build it in the garage for you. He made his own tools, even at home. And like all of that was gone. So it, it wiped him, it wiped him out. I had this memory, very vivid memory when I was, it was right after he got sick and he was home from the hospital. And uh, our house that I grew up in was like a ranch house that all the bedrooms were off the same hallway, you know, and there was only one bathroom. So no master suite, nothing like that. Everybody just shared the same bathroom. And so my parents, we didn't have air conditioning for some reason. I don't know. They could afford it. I think they just wanted us to suffer, but um, they didn't have air conditioning. And, and we didn't have fans in our room even. I don't know why we didn't do this. And I'll have to ask them now, you know, when I get to heaven. But I'm like, why did you do this to us? And so they, it, what they would do is we had this big box fan, this big metal one that if you like touched it, like suck your arm into the elbow and cut it off. And so... They would take that big box fan and they would point it down the hallway. And then you'd open your windows and on some hot summer nights, you, would, you were just suffocating. And like, so if you wanted to live, what you'd have to do is get out of bed and we would lay in the door frames of the hallway to get a little, like, is there air? You know, just a little bit of air. And they just made us suffer like that. And so when my dad got sick, only my youngest sister and I were still at home and 
on hot summer nights, we would lay in our, we'd sleep on the floor in the door frame to get a little bit of air. And so it was common for us to do that. You look down the hall, there's your sister also fighting for her life. And so, you know, you kind of do that. And so I have this very vivid memory of it being hot like that and laying on the floor like that. And my parents' bedroom was in the back, it was the last room on, on the hall. Mine was the first. And so I laid down, my head was pointing that direction. I remember hearing their door open. And I remember my mom stepping out first. And I remember my dad coming out. The, the rehab people giving my dad like this belt you put this belt on, and then it had like a handle that you could like stabilize him. And so as he's walking out, as he's coming out, he's crawling because he couldn't walk yet. He learned to walk again, but he couldn't. And I watch, I'm 12 years old, I'm watching him crawl to the bathroom. And then a little bit later, he came out of the bathroom, he crawled back to his, his bedroom. And I'm I'm standing there, I'm thinking about this the other night, I'm like, I'm 48. If Heidi had to help me go to the bathroom. I'm thinking about, as a dad, you know, you want to protect and provide, and I'm like, if I had a 12-year-old that I couldn't protect... If something happens, I, I can't even get my own kid. Think about not, not being able to do my job. You know, my occupation, pretty much if I can run my mouth, I can do what I need to do. And I, I, I thought if I lost my speech like he did, he couldn't, he had to learn to talk again. Let alone his sharp mind, I mean... I just think, what would that be? I can't even imagine what that did to he and mom's marriage. Because I'm 48. I love Heidi. We have a great marriage. I'm sexy. It, it's all, it, suddenly, he's an invalid. As a 12-year-old, one of the reasons I was so close to my dad is I became like his helper. I'm the, I'm the baby, so I, I lived with him all these years, sick. I, I knew my dad more as someone who was sick than someone who was healthy. I don't really even remember him being healthy. And so I was his, his little hands and feet. He explained something to me, and I'd go do it. Or we'd be working on something, he would explain it to me, and that's, that's how I learned to do things with my hands. I'd had to, my dad would tell me, and I'd do that for him. And I just sit here and I'm thinking, all those years, he's 48, he lived to be 74, so 26 years I watched him live with this, and this year, thinking about how devastating. You're, you're already raised in a horrible situation. You already buried your eight-year-old son. You already buried your sister, her husband, who was your best friend, 
and six of their eight children who were all killed in one car accident. You already did all that. And God's great blessing to you is a stroke. What I saw in my dad, I never, 26 years of witnessing it, and I lived with him, took a 10-year break, and then they lived with us. So I, we lived together, right? I, I lived with him until I went to college, and then about 10 years in, they moved in with Heidi and I. So I didn't, I didn't know my dad from a distance. I lived with the man. I never saw him raise his fist to God. Somehow the, the way that he walked away from the bitterness of his childhood translated into the way that he interacted with his heavenly father when life didn't go his way. We never left the church, never forsook the faith, he was in God's word as much after he was sick than he was before. Before he got sick, he was an elder at our church. He was the leader of all things. It's just kind of his wiring. After he got sick, they changed churches because the, the people of the church were so addicted to his leadership, they couldn't let him be a different person. So they had, to, they had to find their way out and they went to another church. And over the years there, what happened is once again, that little church appointed him into eldership again. But this time his role as an elder was to care for the people who were stuck in nursing homes and were trapped in their houses. Somehow through it all, godliness was just who he became. I, I was looking at this verse, I started thinking about this verse, you know, it's Ephesians 2.10. He would look and say, God, I am your handiwork. And I'm in your handiwork back here as a young man that you are crafting into something different and I have no DNA for it. And now that my life has blown up, because boy, health and prosperity did not play out for my parents. Now that my life has blown up, I'm still your handiwork. I'm asking the same questions. You crafted even this, so what are the good works you now have for me? They're not the same good works you had for me before I got sick. I cannot serve you or lead for you or do for you what, what I did for you when I was 47. But now that I am here, the question of my life has not changed. The circumstances of my life do not alter the higher plane of living that you've called me to. And somehow the old man got his head around that.
and it affects the world. He wasn't born LeBron James, he was recreated LeBron James. That works. It's in him, and he knew it. And he never preached a sermon, never wrote a book. He's a factory worker. Somehow his life, this man from dysfunction, who frankly married a woman from dysfunction, Somehow these people got a hold of Christ. And this incredibly ordinary person who wound up with a shattered body. I've, I've... I've never thrown a ball with my dad, ever. Never hunted with him, never fished with him. He was sick by the time I learned to drive. He didn't teach me to drive. None of it. Didn't leave me a dime. I was spending all my dimes on him. but he called us to something greater. He taught his children and his grandchildren to aspire to something greater, and it was nothing he could offer us. He never got his act together. He couldn't. But somehow... He did the work of faith, of, of stepping back and letting God do his work in him. And through his life and through his boys and through his daughters and through his grandkids, hundreds of thousands of people But he's just a broken, lower, middle class, dysfunctional, uneducated factory worker who learned he was a child of God, who understood the power of God was already in him through the Holy Spirit and who chose to pursue life instead of living in the death he was raised in. See how it works? You were made for this. Men, half of us don't have dads. You were made for this. You were made. You were made to lead. You were made to love. You were made to give. You you were made for it in Christ. You weren't made to be an addict. You weren't made to be dysfunctional. You weren't made to be trapped in sin. 
in Christ, all of that is broken and defeated. We have to become enlightened to it and lock on to a different identity. I'm a daughter of the Most High King. I'm a son of the Most High God. That is who I am. And regardless of your background and your wounds or your present circumstances, God will use your life for the very things that he calls us to live for. Jesus, help us with this. Lord, I'm, I'm so convinced. It's so easy for us to know that we're sinners, so easy for us to know that we're frail. It's so difficult for us to believe that you love us and that your power, the same power you exerted when you rose Christ from the dead, you put into our lives. And it's you, Christ. It's in you alone. It is, it is you that we anchor ourselves to in, the, in the, the veil, in the storm of life. You are the unchanging one. It is your resurrection in us. It is your mind, it is your spirit, it is your word, it is your people. It's all you, but it's given to us. And Christ somehow pressed that deep into us that in you and through you, we can be who you've called us to be. We do not have to live the life of death because we've been resurrected to the hope of who you are and what you're like. Holy Spirit, start that work in us even in this moment. Let, let us believe what you say is true and start to govern our life off of that truth. Press into us now even in these still moments, Jesus, in your name.